0: what happened down there. See, so they actually, they come to bust up still the day before and they run them out of there. My granddaddy and another man ran the ATU. Shot over their heads and stuff like that. They left because they didn't have enough of manpower. And they ran to the run that night and then they come back the next day by the carloads. And then he went and paid him a visit at home. He said, I can't pin it on you. He said, but I'm gonna get your ass. You gonna, and he said that he had taken it personal. Hey guys, that was Jeremy Norris from Broad Slab Distilleries. Fire up your
1: stills, because today's episode is on Moonshine. Hey guys, welcome to Make It A Double, It's the podcast that talks booze, spirits, history, mixology, and the people and stories that make it great. I'm Mike Stojic, and as you just heard, today's episode is all about moonshine. We're going to hear from Jeremy Norris of Broad Slab Distilleries in Benson, North Carolina, whose family has been making whiskey and rum since the mid-1800s. We also have Chuck a hobby distiller out of California who's technically a modern-day moonshiner since the art of crafting fine distilled spirits in your home is, in fact, still illegal. Then to round it all out, we have Rick Morris from Keller, Texas. Rick is the president of the Hobby Distillers Association, an organization which seeks to educate Americans and lawmakers in order to change the laws to allow for individuals at home to distill their own spirits. It's a full episode, so grab your favorite drink, sit on back, and allow us to entertain you for a bit.
0: I'll start with um, how I was told and found out about it. My granddad, uh, he was a produce farmer, and uh, we had a roadside produce stand on NC50 South. Um, which was the route to the beach before I-40 was put in, and um, so we worked in the field together. And um, he would tell me all the stories as we were, you know, working a produce farm. Um, he would tell me the stories about his uh, his daddy and granddaddy and his great granddaddy and um, bootlegging and before prohibition. He had an uncle that was an expert steel builder and. Um, and good whiskey and bad whiskey. And uh, he always used to say he had a doctor's degree in bootlegging. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and, and this was an early age, you know, before I was a teenager and in teenage years. And um, so I've heard all these stories, and I kind of got intrigued with it. I, he, he always said they didn't have any money, but they had plenty to eat and plenty to drink. And um, But they don't much farmland property. I, and I asked him one day, I said, well, if you didn't have any money, how'd you, you know, how did they wind up with so much land? He know. said, "Well, they made a lot of whiskey, <laughs> and um, so I think they must have took their their whiskey money and bought land with it." My great uh, great granddad was William Bill McClam. He was actually the father to my granddaddy's mother. He lived where the distillery sits today. Oh, that's awesome! He used to make whiskey before Prohibition and carry it down to Fedville on wagons. And put it on the Cape Fear River for export. And then, you know, Prohibition came along and they didn't stop. And, you know, <laughs> he, he was pretty big bootlegger. My granddaddy was a was a pretty uh sizable bootlegger at one time in the nineteen forties and fifties. But now his daddy, he just usually made enough for him and his friends. He wasn't really a, a commercial bootlegger, sure. but he was involved in it. So the whole the whole family all his brothers um and uncles made whiskey a lot of them pulled time but so that's what got <laughs> me interested in an early age at um bootlegging thing because it's kind of, kind of went hand in hand in this area with agriculture right and um you know i i I liked agriculture i still do I still like to farm um and it really is just a a branch off of agriculture
1: hey jeremy uh real quick because you mentioned. Pulling time. Um, and for the listeners at home who may not be picking up on what he's putting down, uh, he's talking about going to prison for uh, making moonshine whiskey. What can you tell us about that?
0: About pulling the time, uh, you know, I heard a lot of stories. I wish I had uh, had have uh, recorded my granddaddy because he could tell you exact names, the year, the dates. Um, but, uh, you know, just for example, one story, his, his brother, uh, he had an older brother, he got arrested and went to prison and, um, his, uh, he was, he was being, the the law was looking for him for several days and he kept slipping around him. But what was funny about it is, uh, one of the law enforcement looking him was actually his cousin. (laughs) Um, he was so, yeah. And, and then, uh, there was a story about he, the same guy, his brother was on the chain gang and, um, Actually came down Highway 50, cleaning out the ditches um, with shovels, you know, back in the day they on right. the chain gang. And uh, they were down the road a piece, and they have been working out here for a day or two. And my grandma baked them a cake, a chocolate <laughs> cake, <laughs> and they uh, sit down under under the oak tree, just still here. Uh-huh. And um, the uh, the guards and everybody eat, eat cake. They all just the, yeah. the
1: guards, the prisoners. They all sat around and ate cake.
0: Eight, <laughs> eight, eight cake, and um, <laughs> he, he was pulling time for making liquor. <laughs> right,
1: <laughs> that's awesome. I can picture that your grandma coming out with this cake, and then everyone's like, "Oh, there's cake!" <laughs> and yeah. then everyone just comes together and eats cake. I don't think you'd see that today. No, no, times
0: change. <laughs> and I, I think fifty was actually dirt then, and it was it, you know times were a lot different. Yeah, but he said used to you know when they would you'd have to pull a year or two in in jail that they would you know they would work you every day. You'd be on wow. a chain gang somewhere cleaning out a ditch or and just or, for or cutting just ditch for things.
1: making just for making whiskey. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's. It's still illegal um, to distill your own whiskey or spirits in your home, uh, which I think is a, is a shame, um, and it sh- and it ought not be that way. And hopefully, we can change that. But you can brew your own beer, and you can make your own wine in your kitchen, but you're not allowed to distill your own spirits or whiskey. That's, that's insane to me. It's
0: actually illegal to possess the ingredients or equipment to for is distillation it really? of alcohol. It's the way the law reads in North Carolina. In it's, North-
1: like, it's almost like drug paraphernalia. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it,
0: it is. If you can prove, if they can prove that the ingredients are for making, you know, if you had a couple hundred pounds or you know, a thousand pounds of sugar sitting around um, and you wasn't a baker... You know they could, <laughs> oh, wow. they could charge you for it or or if you had a just a piece of a steel that they could identify was a piece of a distillation equipment, they can actually cite you for it in north carolina wow
1: in in the years two thousand fifteen and you are still be arrested or at least maybe not arrested. can you be arrested or is it just cited
0: um or both? At this day you can pro- you it would probably you'd probably just get a citation, and yeah. I think probably the first offense would be I'm not sure about because you know I'm not a lawyer, but yeah. I, I, (laughs) i think it's a misdemeanor now it's a lot it's a lot uh carries a lot lighter penalty than it used to like used to you would get arrested and get charged with a felony and go to jail but actually i think now the first offense is a misdemeanor
2: that that's a throwback from prohibition though
0: that's chuck
1: a modern day moonshiner living out in california
2: because like prohibition ruined it for almost all the good old boy distillers you know everyone knew back during prohibition everyone knew someone. Who distilled before prohibition came around, and as soon as it became illegal, the federal government came through. They broke all the stills, they arrested everyone, they poured all liquor and uh, beer and everything on in the streets. And what happened was, people wanted to drink, so they started making that damn bathtub gin. Right. And, and so they used anything with alcohol in it, mostly denatured alcohol, rubbing alcohol that you get in a store. And
1: right. Oh, oh no, I'm listening. One second. Oh, sorry.
2: All right. Yeah. No, we're good. I thought someone was going to come over and talk. (laughs) And every liquor is ethanol alcohol, right? Right. However, they put in methanol alcohol on it, which is the stuff that causes you to go blind, causes all the health problems, and kills you.
3: This is a Make It A Double public safety announcement on the dangers of methanol. Methanol is a non-drinking industrial alcohol used mostly in the automotive arenas. It is not produced in toxic amounts by fermentation of sugars from grain starches. However, contamination is still possible by very unscrupulous moonshiners when they use methanol to increase the apparent strength of their product.
2: And and because of that throwback from prohibition, from the bathtub gin, moonshining has been tied with that thought process and it just gave a bad name for everyone who wants to do actually can do it
1: got it yeah that's too bad because it's not really like that i mean if you're doing it right like the way you're doing it it's perfectly safe um yeah well according to chuck there's no real danger in distilling spirits in your own home but is that really the case let's ask rick morris he's the president of the hobby distillers association an organization which strives to educate lawmakers and the public dispelling myths and misconceptions surrounding home distilling. Uh,
4: when there is an incident, it's a product where methanol has been added as an adulterant to extend yield, uh, but that part never gets included into the story. We had uh, one of the representatives we met with, he's a doctor, and he um said to us, well, but it's dangerous, there's methanol poisoning. And we said, yes, methanol poisoning is a very real thing. It's a very uh, serious thing, but the connection to it and the home distilling or distilling in general is one that really is not not there. There's nothing to, to show any link. The worst of products, uh, probably bourbon or whiskeys, and even those have less methanol than a glass of orange juice. Hmm. So, and, and as a matter of fact, it was uh, that representative and then a couple of senators when we were trying to get things moving, we we had to put together a safety sheet and and very specific showing statistics, not just you know, throwing things at them, saying it's safe, but with statistics to, to back it up and quantify things. They then turned and got on board because we were able to show them that, no, there isn't that link that is just again assumed and it's unbelievably a carryover from prohibition era.
1: Okay, uh, yeah, I mean that's definitely something I didn't know. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of coming in this pretty ignorant, and I'm going to assume most of the lawmakers are too. Is most of us we don't know that, so I think it's a huge, huge education process to get the word out and let folks mm-hmm. know that it's not as dangerous as, as you think. I, and especially that orange juice comment, <laughs> that really? that yeah. is that is that is strange to me. I had I had no idea.
4: Home distilling legalized in New Zealand in 1996. We had a very difficult time finding hard stats, even though it was legalized there. Uh, You won't find many stats here because of the legality. A lot of it is, you know, if there's a house fire, nobody's going to say there was a still involved. Uh, So it's very difficult to find numbers. But I I stuck uh, one of my, my real web guru here. Uh, onto it. Mary, she spent a day and actually finally found hard statistics coming out of New Zealand. So it was great because there were hard stats coming out of a country where it is legal, and they broke it down into so many categories. And because home distilling is legal, one of the categories as far as house fires and number of house fires per capita, et cetera, was distillation equipment. So it was separated out, which made it great because we could really localize what percentage of house fires or injuries were caused by that hobby in in particular. Mm -hmm. And the numbers, a fraction, it was um, 10 or 20% of what Normal cooking fires are, which would tell us that people that are doing this know that there are inherent dangers, so they take precautions, and as a result, it actually becomes out becomes safer.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I find that interesting. You're more likely to burn down your own house cooking than you are distilling yeah. spirits. <laughs> That's yeah. interesting. And uh, like I say, it was like quite like, a bit. Like There's a huge, huge difference in that. So I think the, quite a bit
4: some of the figures, uh, I can't remember the term that she used. She's done this kind of thing before and they were statistically insignificant, I believe is what what it was. But some of the stats, yeah, show that it is a fraction of danger levels, if you would, mm-hmm. of basic cooking. So in a country that legalized it, and it's not like it legalized a year or two ago where they've just got a very small list of stats. It legalized in 1996. They've got nearly 20 years on it now. So we got all these stats. What's next? The primary thing at this point is legalization
1: effort. Okay, that makes sense. But in the meantime, it's still illegal. So what is
4: it about hobby or home distilling that's worth the risk? It's primarily just uh, just like home brewing and home winemaking it's um a hobby it's people are doing this for enjoyment they're not doing it to try and save a dollar especially with home distilling the the amount of money that one must put out to purchase or build equipment, uh, it adds up very quickly. It would take a lot of alcohol to to justify that cost-wise. It's generally about the enjoyment of a hobby, just something that's relaxing and fun. Just as beer and wine is, if I make a bottle of wine and sit it on the the table when a friend comes over and he tastes it and looks at me and goes, damn, that's good. (laughs) You've got that pride and your chest kind of pumps up. It's the same thing if I set a bottle of, of bourbon on the table and he tastes it and says how wonderful it is. There's pride in it. It's just it's purely out of enjoyment. These are generally speaking law abiding citizens. They're not up there trying to to just skirt the law. Right. Most of them want this to be legal, It's, it, but they're not about to not be because the government says they're not supposed to.
1: I want to now, <laughs> I, I want to get the still and, and kind of make my own. I, I look at it and it's it's like a craft and it's a bit of a work of art. And you're creating something just like you said, it's the same with beer and wine, but I, I look at it and it's the same as creating a piece of music or painting a, an amazing picture or, or even smoking meat, you know, barbecue, mm-hmm. you know, something amazing and it's just something to be proud of and it's a craft and you work on it and if it's you're interested and i don't see the harm in it
4: and then you try to make you know you you try that and you tweak it to make it a little better yeah it's more to your taste and again yeah it's just it's a hobby people enjoy it and it's just meant to be something fun for people
1: so chuck why is this so important to you why assume the risk? Why not do something like beer or wine, which is legal?
2: I've always been a liquor drinker. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, I've I've always been a liquor drinker. I'm also really big into chemistry. And when it comes down to it, moonshining is chemistry, it's just not the traditional med scientist chemistry where you're making your own nitroglycerin in your garage, which I, I could explain how to do that to you, for you if you want to hear that one too. <laughs>
1: maybe, maybe we'll have a, a show on nitroglycerin and then we'll have you back. Yeah. <laughs> How did you get into this?
2: How did I get into this? I got into this... God, it's, it's an interesting thing. The first time I was around Moonshining was back when I was in high school. One of my friends, old man, had a little tiny pot still just about like mine in his garage. And all he did was distill really cheap beer... Into liquor.
1: Where did you pick so, up this stuff? Because I mean, I guess you can find information on the internet, but
2: yeah, from internet. I actually learned the art, the trade mm-hmm. from a buddy that I met back in 2000. He he's a good old boy from the Appalachian Mountains. He he was the first one in four generations that left Appalachia because that's what his family does. You know, he was having a, I think it was his 19th birthday, and we we're at uh, a military school together. And his old man drove this really old Ford truck, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was like a 30s or 40s Ford truck. And he drove it with like a three gallon oat barrel of moonshine for his birthday. Really? And from there, he told me all about it. He drew pictures. He explained to me how to do it.
1: Well, if you're anything like Chuck, then your first experiences with alcohol would have started while you're in high school. I guess the difference is, is he was so fascinated by the product and the process that he took it a step further and learned how to distill his own. But what about Jeremy? His family has been distilling for five generations. When did he figure this out?
0: I was about 12 years old when we started, me and, a, <laughs> me and a boy in the neighborhood here, we yeah. started uh, making um, scuppin' on wine. Okay. We used, you know, the wild scuppernongs that grow around, the grapes, they call them scuppernongs. ons. Okay. Um, scupp-, not- scupp along, scuppin' on. Okay. <laughs> but uh, they're, they're wild grapes, and they grow right, right around here you go out in the woods and you find a scuffing on vine and you pick them and they're they're kind of real sweet and kind of bi- almost bitter sure. tangy uh real dark grape but we um we would pick every scuffing on we could get our hands on and we were about 12 probably 11 12 maybe 12 13 somewhere in sure. there i don't remember the exact year but, and we went out in the woods and we set us up a site and we had some <laughs> we had five gallon buckets and we mashed in those grapes and we were robbing sugar from my house and his <laughs> house and You know, going to the store, we used to pick up drink bottles and sell them, you know, when they had their deposit. And uh, so we take all our money that we could rate and scrape and go to this little store down here, you know, it's a country store, and buy um, sugar to put in our grapes and we keep them mashed up and fermented off. Wow. And so we were fermenting grapes then, and then we'd get a pillowcase and pour it in, you know, drain it out sure. and squeeze them out in a, you know, squeeze the grapes out uh-huh. through a pillowcase. Yeah. We'd filter it, jug it and everything. No kidding. And drink. So that was my, it, it, I kind of caught the bug then. How did you figure out that process? We knew that um, there was a lot of people, a lot of old timers, a lot of people in the neighborhood made grape wine. Right. So we knew it took grapes, and um, <laughs> yeah. we we knew that they did theirs in barrels. Okay, we did ours in five gallon buckets, and we knew they added sugar.
1: So it was trial and error.
0: Yeah, trial and error. We we would we sired some batches. You know, we got some batches too sweet, and um, uh-huh. it was just you know try, trial and error. No you know, we kidding. Figured it out, and um, actually we made some pretty good wine to be. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> So did you guys keep it for yourself, or is this something you took back and you shared with your
0: grandpa or your no or your, no 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 you, no because we would have got we would have got you know my my granddaddy was actually he didn't want me to get involved in oh really in anything to do with the manufacture of alcohol because um it, what happened to him because of his and st- it messed yeah. messed up you know he said so he said you know keep your record clean and uh-huh. don't get involved in that concentrate on something <laughs> else yeah so so I didn't tell him about the wine. Deal. So we we <laughs> drank we would drink some of that wine, um, and well actually we sold the wine. We sold the wine to uh, the labor. You know, we, this big tobacco country, Sweet yeah, Potato yeah. country, and there's seasonal labor camps where the labor comes in for the summer, and they all stay in a camp. Well, we'd roll up in the camp with a potato basket on the back of the four wheeler with jugs in it, and wow, sell the are wine. you're kidding, and you
1: guys are. 13, maybe 14, probably ran this for a few years and here comes oh, these yeah. ki- these kids and, and they knew right away, right? We're getting our wine today. Like that, I think that's so awesome. And we were probably selling it too cheap. Pro- oh, I guarantee it. <laughs> <laughs> Most kids are riding bicycles or playing football or basketball or working on cars with their dad and, and then you were making wine and that's what got you going and made and really let in the broad
0: slab, that, <laughs> that
1: is so awesome. Yeah, I don't
0: suggest anybody doing <laughs> <it> now. <laughs> Even though I'm not that old times, we a lot different. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. There, it is a lot different. And it wasn't until, until I was going to put in the legal distillery that he actually opened up and started telling me technical things
2: really yeah
0: he wouldn't he hid every I mean, he would tell me the stories right and would that, which that was the the fuel that, that fed the fire um right. and i didn't know i don't know if he knew that but um you know at an early age i was intrigued and i thought well that was you know that's interesting that's sounds cool and but um but he always discouraged it until wow, no until kidding. i went um legit and um when we were talking about putting it in a distiller he said that's a great idea
1: all right, guys, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to hear from Jeremy and Chuck on their whiskey-making process, building their stills and ingredients they use. Rick will also talk a little on federal reporting, and Jeremy is going to take us deeper into his family tradition. Bye-bye. Guys, let me tell you about my friend, Malia Christie. She creates some incredible works of art. She's very talented. Just like the great street artist, Banksy said art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable and that is what malia sets out to do with shaded and faded shaded and faded is unique it's original it all comes from the creative mind of malia christie she specializes in figure abstract mixed media canvas painting and custom furniture creations check her out on facebook search shaded and faded while you're checking out shaded and faded why not listen to wait what if Wait What If is a podcast hosted by another friend of mine, Kevin Sullivan. If you're interested in far out there things that make you stop and think, huh, wait, what if? Then check out Kevin's podcast, Wait What If, on iTunes and Stitcher or stream it from podbean.com. He explores things like what happens to the soul if you're teleported, observational reality, the Fermi paradox, and our ghosts real, just to name a few. Check him out on Facebook. It's Wait What If also if you're near Clayton, North Carolina and for those of you who need a reference, Clayton is just outside of Raleigh, North Carolina but if you're anywhere near Clayton on the 10th of October and you like beer and you like barbecue and you like live music, then check out the Clayton Shindig on October 10th It's currently in its fourth year. It gets bigger and better every time. Some of the breweries on site will be Double Barley, Deep River, and Aviator, just to name a few. There will be ten bands on two stages with performances by the Steel Drivers and Black Lilies, just to name a couple. And the Whole Hog Barbecue Series will be here smoking up the best barbecue you ever had. Check out their website for a full lineup and ticket information at www.theshindigclayton.com. That's the shindigclayton.com. Now let's get back to the show.
2: I have a corn recipe, and then I have a rye recipe similar to George Washington's. I buy um, cracked feed corn from a local feed store. So it's like the cracked feed corn is already crushed. It's like corn maize that so you can buy at the grocery store and $10 for 50 pounds. Okay. I have a small still, so I can only run two and a half gallons at a time, and I yield roughly three quarters to a gallon of shine at a time. I mash, I make five gallons of mash and that gives me two runs on my still. If you just do straight corn, you, it's not a big yield. So I do corn as a primary grain, right? You have to do a malted grain. So I normally do malted barley because if you just do corn, none of the starches in corn converts to sugar. So okay. you need a malted grain to convert the starches in the corn into sugar, which the yeast converts the sugar into alcohol. So it's all in in starch, sugar, alcohol conversion. Normally, I add like a bunch of sugar because that increases the alcohol content of my mash.
0: Ours, you know, we we grow from season to season. We rotate out crops. We have corn, wheat, and soybeans. And uh, we're actually sourcing our barley here in North Carolina right now. But in the next year or so, I'm going to start growing my own barley too. My distillery is built here on the farm. We're out in the country. Uh, We grow our own grain. Um, we store our own grain. We mill our own grain.
1: I think that's awesome because, I mean, you have complete control of the whole process. And then what you're getting is truly broad slab distilleries whiskey um, because it's from,
0: from start to finish. And that's probably why it tastes as good as it does. Pretty much we do everything from dirt to bottle. And I say we, but it's me. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I, I do I do all that now. And, um, yeah, I, I get my mother-in-law. She helps me. <laughs> <laughs> She helps me do the bottling, so yeah. I do have help when we bottle. And I have some um, some younger girls that come here and like yeah. on Thursday, Friday, and Saturdays that pour up samples and stuff. But as far as the farming, the grain handling, and yeah, the, the milling meat of the operation, like the real operation, distilling, and yeah. I do I do all that right by myself.
1: Wow, that's incredible. I had I had no idea. So, um, do you have any kids? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I, have,
0: I have two boys.
1: Are you passing this this knowledge on to them?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I don't know if both. Uh, one, I hope one or both will take it and run with it. Right. Um, you know, they're still kind of young, so they're um, not at the age they can participate a whole lot. Yeah. Them, but, um <laughs> That's right. The oldest one, he he does a lot of uh, tractor work for me, field work. He'll dis okay. dis land and. Um, uh, he keeps the grass cut, and the little one, the, the youngest one, he does the weed eating, and you know, take the trash out, and I keep them busy. But, <laughs> yeah, I, I hadn't got them out on the steel yet because I, I don't I don't want I could probably go to jail for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely
0: don't need that.
1: <laughs> I hope. So what is so what is the age then? When when can they start doing that sort of thing? Yeah,
0: I don't know. Nobody's ever told me. I, I'm thinking. <laughs> My, my granddaddy, he went he went to the steel with his brothers when he was five years old. Okay. And uh started helping he said he would tote water in a little pail back and forth and um he had his own steel when he was thirteen.
1: Wow. Boy, times were sure different.
0: Times so my so oldest different. son's thirteen now, and he yeah probably he, I don't hear. I don't let him help me run the steel because I don't want him going to school <laughs> saying you know I made liquor you know that's yesterday, right you know so.
1: did, what did you do uh, you know for show and tell and he stands up and he's got a bottle yeah <laughs> this is the one I made <laughs> yeah. yeah I don't
0: think today's society will put up with that no we're,
1: <laughs> yeah maybe not
0: I was actually taught on a little two barrel steel uh-huh. um a seventy five gallon steel you know that we had to keep it stirred till you cap it up and when you cap it up you'd have to paste all the seams with cornmeal and flour you know so it wouldn't leak it's a little kettle and doubling keg and shotgun condenser and mm-hmm. um pretty nice little outfit actually it's on display here at the um or one like it just like it's on display here at the um tasting room and gift shop so that little steel is traditional to the to the area neighborhood so i wanted to do a big commercial version of it i blew it up as far as um the size and scale and proportioned it out and carried it to Van and told Van what I wanted to do and so he jumped in he he drew it out on AutoCAD and, and built it on the computer first and mm-hmm. cause it's a pretty big well it's 500 gallon steel pretty big project for us so he had two sons and um, one did the welding one did the machine drilling and machining and I did the grinding and built the jigs to hold everything together and it was a joint effort and we got in about three months we had it complete it's got a agitator and Pressure relief, vacuum relief, steam temperature, liquid temperature—actually, uh, handcrafted steel up to commercial standards. Yeah, it, it's a it's a unique uh, piece of equipment.
1: No kidding, and 500 gallons. I'm gonna, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just gonna guess a bit more uh, user friendly than
0: it is. It's a lot more user, still, a lot, lot more user friendly. <laughs> far as you know, but honestly. The little steel is an enjoyment to run because it's a challenge to get all the leaks sealed up yeah. you know, and everything's hot and not do it without getting burnt and you know, yeah, that sort yeah. of thing. And, and also my granddaddy used to tell me, he said, making liquors like playing cards. You get that. A different hand every time, right? Which it's a little bit different. And back in those days, when they were they were fighting the elements, it was either, it was either too cold or too hot or uh-huh. it was rainy or you know it was hard to get the the fermentation to do the same every time. Now I don't have yeah. the obstacles they had because we got a controlled environment, but we still do it the old way. We don't have sealed, temperature-controlled mash vats and things like mm-hmm. that. We're doing open fermentation in open vessels that are not temperature-controlled, and we have consistency, you know, pretty good consistency right. out of that. But, you know, from time to time, we have some that, that work off quicker than others uh, and some of them that lag, take longer.
1: You know? how, do you, how do you know that? Um do You sample it, or no? I can just I, look, it. I can look can, at it. You can. You're. You've gotten to the. That sounds almost like the master distiller, right? There's just the fact that you can look at it and you can tell if it's ready or not.
0: Yeah, I can look at it and tell about how long it's going to be and wow. where it, where it's at in its stage of fermentation. Well, you know, you, you were going to bring up about the, the on the back of my bottle, master That's right. distiller. That's right. That's right. I completely but, forgot. Well, you, I did that intentionally and on purpose because um, I I see it all the time. I see these people. That um that go out and open a distillery, that, you know, um, they've been distilling for six months or yeah. twenty four <laughs> months or I don't care if it's for five years, and then you know they're the master distiller, right? So um I don't even consider myself a master. Wow, really?
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, and for those folks y- you you don't know this, uh, before we started recording, I asked Jeremy because I noticed on the back of one of his bottles it said distiller. And then it had Jeremy Norris underneath it. It didn't have Master Distiller, which is what I'm used to seeing on a lot of craft liquor products and craft beers. It will say Master Brewer. So I asked him about that. And we didn't talk about it then. We're talking about it now. That is really awesome. I think that shows a lot of... It just shows that you're very humble uh, in your approach. You'd rather put the emphasis on what's in the bottle rather than on yourself. And maybe in 50 years... When you've really perfected the craft, then you're the then you're the master distiller. Yeah,
0: if or, in
1: fifty, in, maybe not fifty. Maybe we don't yeah, need to wait fifty. May, <laughs> maybe don't we need to wait fifty. But maybe not quite that. If long, I get right. to
0: the point that um that we're profitable, yeah, and we're doing well, yeah. and um and you know I've I've handed it down to my sons, then I'll take the title of master yes,
1: distiller. Yeah, but, now um, you're the master, and then they can be the distiller. So
0: I'm the only distiller.
2: Oh, I have a stainless steel stock pot that I converted to my pot. So and then I got a copper coil from Home Depot for the warm, you know, and, and I, I basically did it all DIY. You can buy that stuff online. The big caveat on buying online is the companies who sell it online are required to inform the federal government that they sold you that item. Yeah, like California, I know a lot of California law because that's currently where I live. If you have one, like in California, you can tell the California ABC that alcohol beverage control. You can tell them that, hey, you have a still, but you're not using it for alcohol, that you can use it for. You can, um, like, flavor water through a still. However, it entails them to go to your house and check your still, check your house to make sure you're not doing anything illegal. And they can do that whenever they want.
1: Because, yeah, nobody needs that sort of spotlight, especially for something like this. In my mind, and I think in a lot of people's minds, it shouldn't even
4: be illegal to begin with. Yep. they all companies selling distillers. Distillers, distiller boilers, and, and distiller columns are required to record uh, those sales, keep, keep record of them. There was a short time frame where everybody did have to report those sales uh, th- that is no longer the case. Again, we just have to record them. The year and a half or two years where we had to report them, I think it was about a year and a half. But no, it's we do have to record them. But that's the same. If it's a you know, you go out and buy a, a water distiller that's over one gallon capacity, it has to be recorded. For the
1: same same reason oh okay so you, it's not as if i show up buy a bunch of stuff and then it's not like you get on the phone and you contact the, go- <laughs> the federal government yeah, it's more know. like you hold the information because that's how that works um yeah but i guess if they ever for- came looking i guess they could come any time of the day they wanted and ask you to present that information the likelihood of them doing that i'm, I'm guessing is probably non-existent
4: i would think that it'd be very unlikely to to happen mm-hmm. um a couple of reasons one is like i said they don't seem to be averse to the idea when we went to the TTB
3: the TTB is the alcohol tobacco tax and trade bureau they are designed to collect taxes on alcohol tobacco firearms and ammunition protect the consumer by ensuring integrity of alcohol products and prevent unfair and unlawful market activity for alcohol and tobacco products. They enforced the provisions of the Federal Alcohol Administration Act, which was passed in 1935.
4: We didn't know what to expect, but we felt that we needed to go to them so that both told them what we were doing and took their input, uh, took what their feeling on it was. We didn't want them to have any reason to feel that we were trying to slide something like this behind their backs we just we wanted to be open and honest about it and get their input and tell them what we were doing and and um, they they definitely uh, appeared to respect that we were doing that again i they have recently told us we no longer you know none of us have to report the those sales given the fact that they appear to at the very least not be averse to the concept of legalization and that they have stopped requesting our list, told us to stop sending it in, I would highly doubt that it would. they would come to us and have us start doing it again. Uh, But, I mean, they they have the legal right to do so, but I would highly doubt that it would happen. The other thing people need to know, it's a three-year rolling list, so they can only go back three years. Purchase it from us now, and five years from now, they requested the list. That that person's not going to be reported.
1: So, Chuck, you really are a modern-day moonshiner. (laughs) I mean, you're pretty much under the radar... Um, yeah making your stuff the same way they were doing it back in the 30s and 40s and, and 50s and, and and really for forever since it's been illegal i guess the the only difference is you're you're pro- i'm going to guess you're probably not in the middle of the woods
2: yeah you you don't have to be in the middle of the woods you yeah you do it in your garage you can do it in your living room your bathroom you could do island in the middle of the
1: desert. Really, you're carrying on a tradition that's really yeah. uniquely American. I think. I mean, it's just as American as apple pie and baseball. Really, making your own corn yeah. whiskey. I mean, that's that's authentic American, and it's crazy. It's still legal. <laughs> How long does the whole process take from start to finish?
2: The start to finish, like yeah, like the uh, whole mashing fermentation process.
1: Yeah, the whole process. T- what is that normally takes? Run you?
2: Um, the mashing, just getting the mash going, takes roughly five hours. That's from getting the corn soft to heating barley up to the to right temperature, letting the corn and the barley cool, mixing those two get together, letting it do the rest cycle, and then waiting until it's below 90 degrees Fahrenheit to, in order for me to add the yeast to do the alcohol conversion or the fermentation process.
1: And then from there to the time you're actually able to drink what you produce, how much more time do you need?
2: It takes roughly Four hours, three and a half, four hours to do a two and a half gallon run. But it's like the, the the mash, when I'm done with it, the corn mash doesn't taste really good. I wouldn't drink the corn mash. Right. But the rye mash tastes amazing. And I could drink the rye mash, just the rye mash itself because it's basically like beer. No kidding. Yeah.
1: And man, you can do that in just a few hours? Yeah. That's awesome. I, I had no idea. For some reason, I was picturing this, like, days uh,
2: process. Well, like, the, the fermentation process takes, like, 10 to 14 days. Okay, that's But running the still only takes a couple hours.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I find that interesting because it's really not that long at all. But um, I bet it feels quite a bit longer when you know the law's looking for you and coming back after you. Guys, remember Jeremy's grandfather from the beginning of the story?
0: My granddaddy and another man ran, ran the ATU. Shot over their heads and stuff like that. They left because they didn't have enough of manpower. Let's hear the rest of that story. He said he won't hurt him. My, my granddaddy was a good man, good Christian man. What they were, they come in through the backside and they were over here fixing to tear up the steel and he had another man with him. They went with two of them and there was four or five ATU officers and he made it sound like they started making a lot of noise and calling a bunch of different names. They made it sound like there was a whole posse of them coming through the woods. Oh, and they were got shooting it. over their heads with a shotgun in this so the shot was falling down in the woods and there there's some tree limbs and stuff falling. Got it, And um so they left and they ran to the run that night and then and got it out of the woods and left the steel there and when they, and they come busted everything up.
1: And he was the one who had the doctorate in bootlegging.
0: My granddad, he used to say. he, so had was, a, he
1: a, was he? Was he driving the car? Was he the one who was? Is he responsible for NASCAR? Is that- <laughs> no, 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 no. He
0: said. He said. Uh, you know, he he was talking about. He was bragging on how good he was. Yeah, yeah. And he said he had a doctor's degree in bootlegging. And one day I asked him. I said, Well, how much how much whiskey do you think you've made? You know, because uh-huh. he kept he was telling me all it, you know these stories and everything. He he actually got ran away from the farm. Well, he didn't really, he left the farm to keep from going to prison. <laughs> and um, so, but he told me, he said, if you could put it in one vessel and turn it all out at one time, it would wash 50 Highway in two. That's a lot, yeah. So he couldn't, he didn't have a gallon figure, but that's, no, a, that's but, about, but he, about but the way he could put it in. We can imagine security. what that looks like. And that's man, that's a lot.
1: So, how did he know when it was good to come back?
0: It was, I mean, at some point, see, he had to come back, yeah. He came back, he left from. Sometime in the mid 50s, yeah, and came back in the mid 70s. Whoa, 20 years! No,
1: 20, I wouldn't have thought years. that. I thought you were going to tell me two or three years, but yeah. 20.
0: It was 20 years, so he can't. He everything the smoke had kind of cleared. It took 20 years for that. <laughs> and listen, he he still, he still, um, there were certain things he wouldn't even tell me that it had happened and transpired and really? took place until you know there was a few people that had. Moved on? It died. It died yeah, moved it? Yeah. yeah.
1: Whoa, no kidding.
0: He actually, when he left, he left, he left a crop in the field, a brand new Super A tractor and uh, hogs on the ground. Wow. He just, he, he just picked up. Just and, one day up and left. Yeah, and he, he left the, uh, the crops and everything. It was uh, like a tenant farmer, or a guy, and split it with him.
1: So when he comes back, how influential was he in creating broad slab distilleries?
0: Well, getting back to the produce stand, we had the beach traffic. And we had a a viable business out here, and when they opened up Interstate Forty, it dried up because we lost beach traffic. So he told me, he said, "You should open up a." And I was young; I was real young. He said, "When you get older, you should open up a moonshine museum." He said, "I bet you those people would come back off the interstate, and you can get them back out here." Mm -hmm. And um, so that's kind of where the idea started from was a moonshine museum. Right then it got. You know, I was like, I can't, that that don't work out financially. And um, so then then I started the distillery and um, we're actually working toward putting in that museum. Um, So you go, you come out to the distillery, you do, you know, tour the distillery, do a tasting, tour the farm, see the animals, see the farm equipment. The old you know, the old antique farm equipment. We're gonna put in some some old barns and things and you know, for for people that don't remember the log tobacco barns that were wood fired and the smoke houses and the pack houses. Wanna do stuff like that and have it kinda like a spread out museum of the whole place. That's awesome. So he he was all in. When I told him my idea and what I was gonna do, he started telling me the technical parts of it and, and that's the recipe on the shine actually came from him. And he had told me there were two different kinds of liquor, one to, one to sell, one to drink. I <laughs> said, well, I want the one to drink, you know.
1: All right, guys, before we close this out, I asked our guests for any advice they'd offer to someone interested in getting started in distilling.
2: Start simple, start small, because you you can buy all the copper you want to make a full 100% copper still. Stainless steel pot, copper tubing, some brass fittings to the copper and stainless steel just try and experiment. It's a craft. It's an art. Art doesn't come quick or easy. You you have to live through the pains of learning. Don't drink the first that comes out of the still because that's the bad shit. <laughs> you, 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 you get all the bad shit from the good shit. You know,
4: ignoring the the legality uh, because of course right now we will tell anybody it's you know it's not legal and um, we tell people to abide by the law. I mean it's. Uh, we're not going to tell someone to go and break the law. But ignoring that, or, or if it were to, you know, if it does legalize, we'll see a lot of home brewers, home winemakers that do like to take that next step. Uh, be it that they had a batch of you know, wine that went bad, they had some problem with it. Well, they now figure I'll try my hand at turning it into a brandy. Uh, but you've also got those that have not brewed, have not made wine and want to step into it. The biggest thing I tell people is you know, start with the simple tasks. Start with Something like a vodka it 's easier to do and get your your feet wet and get a feel for the overall process before you start delving into a whiskey a brandy, a rum that is a little bit more involved uh, and requires that you already have a basic skill set biggest thing I tell people uh, you know when they i 've had people come in i 've had people um, call or email that have not a clue they they're interested in it. They would like to try distilling, but they haven't. Many don't even know that you have to ferment first. Tell them right off the bat, get a good book on the basics and read through it just to get a fundamental knowledge of it. Two reasons. One, if you decide to move forward, you've got an understanding. You know what the process is, uh, and and you're a little better armed. But also, you might read through it and go, no, the, you know what? That's not for me. Mm-hmm. And you've saved yourself hundreds of dollars in equipment, to find that out.
1: Oh, for sure. Um, any oh, books no. Any books that you would recommend? You said get a good book. I don't know if maybe you uh, could
4: one. I hate to suggest uh, Joy of Home Distilling at times. It's like patting myself on, on the back because I was uh, contracted two years ago by a publisher to write it. But the goal of that book is to be an A to Z book, giving all the basics right for, through beginner and intermediate level. Distillation and not just tell you what to do, but why and what is going on in the process that you so that you have a good understanding and you know what's happening. That one is a very good book for that, for that beginner or intermediate person. There's another one that if a person is really looking at just the basics, just wants to get a a quick, easy rundown on the basics of it, it's called The Home Distillation Handbook. Uh, It's uh, by Gert Strand in Sweden. It's very simple, easy read. And again, it just covers the basics, but it does a very good job of that. And it's a smaller book, so it's a little faster read, if if I recall, (laughs) 100 pages as opposed to around
1: 250. Oh, oh, it's quite a bit
4: smaller. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, mine also has, you know, it goes through the different pieces of equipment, the different processes, pot distillation, reflux distillation.
1: Uh, yeah, yours uh, is a bit more detailed. Yours is, is a bit more general I'm getting, then, huh?
4: Yeah, it, it gives you a little bit wider uh, scope of, of understanding uh, as well as recipes, etc. So it's uh, drink recipes a little bit. It's meant to be an enjoyable read, but also something that will appeal to the, the beginner or somebody that has done a little bit but wants to... Step it up, maybe not to advance, but step it up a little bit.
0: My my advice would be to anybody that wanted to start a distillery um, would be planning, plan, make sure they had a plan and had it well planned out. Um, have you know a business plan, financial plan, uh, marketing plan. The par- the product is very important as far as you know having a a good part product and something you know great product. But um, believe it or not, that is not the most important thing. It's one of the, it's one of the important things but um, marketing is the is the, Im- the most important thing because um, you'll find out if you got the I found out if you, it doesn't matter if you got the best product in the world unless you got a marketing plan to to market it and mm-hmm. get it out to the public it'll sit on the shelf um, and then the next thing would be you know keep your keep the overhead low because I, I, I thought just like everybody thinks you you start a distillery and you're going to be able to sell all you can make. Um, that's not necessarily true. <laughs> so it's very doable, but you need a, a good marketing plan. Uh, you need some marketing capital and keep the overhead low. And um, you need a story behind the brand and, uh, and just take it slow and really analyze everything. That would be my advice.
1: Alright, guys, that's it for the show. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. I want to send a special thank you to all of our guests, Jeremy Norris of Broad Slab Distilleries. Go online and check out their website at BroadslabDistillery.com where you can learn more history and get recipes. But more importantly, head on down to his distillery and meet Jeremy in person and hear some of his stories firsthand while sampling his whiskey and rum. Broad Slab Distilleries runs tours on Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. Truly authentic North Carolina moonshine that goes back five generations. Also, thanks to Rick Morris, president of the Hobby Distillers Association, a great organization dedicated to education, preserving the fine craft of distilling spirits, and changing laws to allow Americans the ability to distill spirits in their homes. Learn more at hobbydistillersassociation.com, and show your support for this fine American tradition by becoming a member. There are different levels of membership, and the basic level is free. And thanks to Chuck, our modern-day moonshiner. Without these fine gentlemen sharing their knowledge, experience, and stories, we would not have a show. Finally, go to DoublePodcast.com to check out show notes, view photos from my interviews, find more information on all our guests, and links to their websites. I'm also on Facebook. Check out Make It a Double Podcast on Facebook. Give it a like. It's the best way to get current info on shows and guests. If you have any comments or show ideas or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out. I'm always happy to hear from our listeners. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening, and until next time, cheers.
0: My philosophy is a fast quarter is better than a slow dollar any day.